This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by the Charcoal Book Club. Their carefully curated selections reflects the best in contemporary photography and all for a reasonable price. And they are delivered directly to your doorstep each month. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. It's a great way to begin or expand your photo library. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. This episode of The Candid Frame is also brought to you by Frames Magazine. It's a quarterly publication that showcases the work of many of the best in contemporary photography, including Steve McCurry, Martin Parr, and Amy Vitale. Each issue is beautifully printed and thoughtfully curated by its editors. It's a wonderful way to discover and be inspired by great photography. Subscribe today and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME to enjoy a 10% discount on your monthly or yearly subscription when you visit readframes.com forward slash join. Despite the toxic polarization we've experienced as a society over the last several years, Americans have earned a reputation for generally being open and friendly. In my travels, I have struck up conversations with perfect strangers and have enjoyed some wonderful discussions and experiences. It's a quality that has allowed photographers to enter the lives of every kind of people and community in ways that would have been difficult if not impossible, in other places. Photographer Anouk Kranz has gained the trust of communities that identify as American cowboys. These are men and women who don't adhere to some Hollywood mythology, but who define themselves by their ties to each other, the land, and a shared mindset of hard work and determination. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, thank you for having me on your podcast. Oh, thank you for for uh, sending your book my way and uh, for making some time for me this morning. I really do appreciate it. Of course. I really have enjoyed the book and learning more about you know your story, and um, I'm eager to share it with with, with the listeners. I, I want to start with your upbringing in, in France. I know you were from the south of France, but what city or town were you did you grow up in? And tell me a little more about that experience. Well, my, my mom is from Holland, from Amsterdam. She was born during the Second World War uh, in Amsterdam. And my father was actually born in Dakar, Senegal. Um, his father was stationed uh, in Dakar uh, with the army. But he was originally from the south of France. And so my parents met in France. And that's where I was born, in Toulouse, in the south of France. Um, and we we moved a lot for my dad's job. Um, so we lived in the south of France and north of France, closer to Holland. Uh, Holland was always a big part of um, our time, especially when we lived in the north of France. Um, and so I was raised with Dutch and French at home. Uh, and of course, later on, we I also learned uh, how to speak English at school. Um, and then we moved to south of Paris uh, in my teens. And that's when uh, my last year of high school, uh, we moved to New York City. 
Um, and um, that's that it was my first time in New York. And uh, I finished my last year of high school at the Lycée Francais in New York City. And then I went back to to Paris, to Paris 11, which is a university. And uh, I thought I was going to be a veterinarian specialized in horses because I used to ride a lot and show jump when I was younger. And um, and so I studied um, biology, chem, uh, chemistry, and math for about two years. And then I had a change of, um, you know, it, something changed. I wanted to come back to New York. There was something about that city that was uh, quite vibrant and just so different uh, than the way that I grew up in France. Um, I went to Catholic school, and we had I had a very strict upbringing. And uh, when you land suddenly in New York City and you are, um, you know, in Manhattan and you have all the people and all these different backgrounds and cultures, it just, um, I absolutely loved it. So <laughs> after two years, I said, Mom and Dad, I'm going back to New York. And so I, I came back and I transferred my credits. And then I, I was trying to figure out how to... Um, how to sort of adapt to this new environment and how to make friends and um, and to learn more about New York. And so I started, uh, I knocked actually on a few doors, uh, on retail doors. I thought, what a better experience. There's no other better experience than working in a retail store in Manhattan because that's when people come in and they oh, go yeah. out and, you know, you get to talk to them and and so I um, had no retail experience, and my parents were just like, "What are you doing?" And I, <laughs> and so I went and knocked on the door of Barney's and some other retail stores, and I got a job. And so that's what I did from nine to five. Um, I used to work at Barney's, and then I would go and um, to college on the Upper East Side uh, from six to ten, ten o'clock, and then I would study, and I would just do that for a year and a half or two, and graduated from college and uh, and worked at the same time and that was a way for me just to get to know what new york city was all about which was really cool it must have been interesting having spent most of your life in europe and sort of absorbing the exported american culture in the form of television movies books <laughs> and then it's coming out here especially in your in your teens and experiencing it for yourself so what were some of the surprises what did you discover that you didn't expect when you were coming over here compared to what you thought America was? Well, New York City is not really the United States. You, New yeah, York City is its true. own country, you know, in itself. And and um, having grown up, you know, sort of never in a city in France, always in the suburbs. You know, and it was very quiet and it was a wonderful life. But you come from rural France and then you go to New York City, that is, these are, those were two extremes, but, and so you suddenly feel so little in this big city filled with so many people. But what I loved the most was just the different backgrounds and, and all these different people going somewhere. And, and, and so uh, I had never seen anything like that in my life. I only had heard about New York City, you know, through TV and the news and reading magazines and fashion magazines. And as a French girl, you dream about, I mean, like many kids or people around the world, you dream about New York City, um, about... Um, you know this, this, these, this, the skyline and the bridges and 
Uh, I mean, back then the trade, you know, trade center, the twin towers were still, you know, up, and and so. Um, there was this dream about coming to New York City and just experiencing all that. And so once I was there, uh, I mean, that was back in the late 90s. It was it was amazing. It was so dynamic and so vibrant. And there was so much energy in New York City of, you know, different people doing different things. And, um, you know, from the fashion industry to the publishing, anything. It was just incredible to see so many different people from different backgrounds coming together in one place. And that is something that yet, you know, you can read, you can listen, you know, you can watch TV and you can see it all that, but the experience, you know, yourself is just completely different. Um, and, and that was something that was a big part of um, New York City has been a big, big part of my life, um, just from, what, you know, where I came from. It's really sort of fascinating in terms of sort of the European French sensibility in terms of interacting with people and the type of dynamic that exists in New York. And it also compares with how things are in the rest of the, the rest of the country. You have to be really a, sort of adept at figuring out sort of like the parameters, you know, sort of the guidelines in terms of what's okay, what's not okay. Especially if you're the kind of person like you are, who are very curious about people and their lives, and you want to gain, gain entree into it. Was your interest in photography always tethered? to that fascination with people of of trying to find a way to sort of gain entry into other people's world world from um you know, i was i remember i was a little girl and i had this my i think one year i may have been five or six that i asked for a globe you know one of those old-fashioned globes yeah. you can spin and i had it on my side table and i always remember looking at it and spinning it around at night before going to bed and then just dreaming about, you know, putting my finger on it and saying, like, I just wonder how people are living there or there and, you know, language, the food and, you know, what do they do? Like, I'm waking up and this is what I'm doing today. And like, I wonder what their life is, you know, is like. And and we never really traveled much um, when I was younger because my parents couldn't afford it. Uh, so I always, I think even more, really wanted to go and explore the world from a very early age. And and so New York City was at one step. But I, I was, I didn't mean to be a photographer. Like, I always loved photography. I had my first camera when I was six or seven. I always played around with it and loved taking pictures. But it's not till later on, after I left my job at Cartier in New York City... Um, and it was after September 11 that I just I sort of took a step back and I thought, you know, I just I want to start traveling and I want to, you know, try to to discover new places and, and get to know new people and, and sort of always had a dream in my head about traveling around the world and, and just figuring out how other people live. And that doesn't mean, you know, staying at fancy hotels like I was really attracted by going to. Cambodia and, 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 and sort of visiting these people who live on these fishing boats um, or to Vietnam and um, visiting tribes, you know, who still live deep in the mountains. Like that was certainly something that fascinated me thinking like, how do these people still live like that today? 
when we have these big cities, all this concrete, you know, that has risen from the bottom to the top, they're filling our skylines. Like, they're just such, you know, different ways of living, and I was just intrigued. And so, um, I didn't, I traveled for quite a bit, um, after I left Cartier, I went to Asia and I fulfilled that dream. I went to Cambodia and Vietnam and Thailand. And then I traveled to Guatemala and El Salvador. And um, and I just had the greatest time. And that was exactly what I was doing. I was going and staying with these, uh, visiting these uh, villages and staying with people. And uh, they were inviting me in and um, offering food and tea. And, and so I did a whole little series of pictures uh and i really enjoyed it um and so i wanted to continue but then i had my i got married and i had my two children and so then you can't really travel anymore and uh, but i i want wanted to keep uh you know maybe i wanted to take some time off to raise my children but i wanted to keep my identity as also women and, and still do something for myself. And so that is really when I started taking more pictures, but yet that took me to Cumberland Island, which is a small little island off the coast of Georgia. And that was something that I really wanted to do for myself. And, and it's very interesting because now we're, um, I started that project in 2004. So we are, close to 20 years, you know, later. And and you're sort of reflecting back on your life. And all these steps were part of where I am today. And, and yet I never had a plan at all. All these little steps were little pieces that helped me sort of be where I am today. And, and that's just yeah. fascinating to go to that pro- through that process, you know, 20 years later. So, so Cumberland Island, um, as I said, was it, it's a small little island off the coast of Georgia. And I sort of stumbled across it, and it has a population of wild horses. And I was sort of a little thing, I'm like, well, I used to ride and show jump in France and no longer riding in, in, in New York City. So it seems very unique to have an island that is disconnected from the main island and has a population of wild horses. And then I research a little bit more and it was just a fascinating history of the island of Spanish and British missionaries um, coming through for hundreds of years and then the Carnegie family sort of stumbling upon it and um, and building these incredible uh, lavish mansions in the 1800s and and then some other families came but the island um, was sort of given to the national parks in the in 1971 they signed a bill with nixon and what these families didn't want to see happen was that this island would be built like its neighbors since simmons all these other islands that have um concrete concrete and a lot of concrete hilton's marriott's and um you know, garbage cans and, and paved roads and all that. They they love this island so much that they wanted to see it preserved. And so that's what I did. And um, and I can't tell you how... It was just an amazing time of my life. It was 10 years where I went back and forth from New York. And I pretty much extracted myself from my busy, fast-paced, competitive life in New York. 
and, and would arrive there and would completely disconnect. And here I was alone with my little backpack, camera, lens, to maybe two lenses. And I would just walk up and down all four corners of this island. And it's the size of Manhattan. And, um, and my gosh, I, I got in trouble very often because there's quicksand. I mean, the weather can be um, turned, you know, really bad very quickly. But during that time, I was able to take a few steps back after decompressing, usually took 48 hours, and, and sort of looking um, at my life and... Um, and sort of sorting, you know, through everything and trying to make sense of, you know, what was important, what was not, and, and really just gaining that better perspective. That, and, and I think that back then or today, we very quickly lose track of that um, because we get so wrapped up in our daily lives that we're just spinning and spinning and spinning and we just go nonstop. And very rarely do we just sort of, you know, hop off and say, let me take a few steps back and just sort of uh, have, a, you know, to gain a better perspective on life and, and, and sort through, um, you know, things that are important or not. And that connection with nature allowed me to do that. And, and that sort of translated later on um, when this... Cumberland Island, Wild Horses of Cumberland Island came out um, and became uh, a bestseller. Uh, people asked me right away, well, what is next? And to me, it was very important to, um, to figure out a way to find other landscapes that connected with people uh, and, and preferably, you know, almost untouched landscapes like Cumberland Island that were inhabited by people. And where those people have that same connection as I did on Cumberland Island with Mother Nature, with, you know, out like the earth, the land, the sand, grass, every, you know. And, and so my thought was very, very quickly, I thought about a cowboy because these communities still live, um, they live in the shadows of our nation's consciousness. We don't know much about them. Um, but yet their and, and their connection to the land is is incredible. Um, they're far removed from our consciousness and uh, and and they still live in ways you know that it, going back to a hundred years ago, they're still working on horseback with with their dogs and and the land. And so that is sort of the whole progression how uh, I ended up out west. It's kind of special that you had the opportunity to focus on a singular subject for 10 years. Because I think when you, when you do that, you get to learn not, not only a lot about your subject matter, but you also get to discover a lot about yourself in terms of who you are as a photographer. Not so much in terms of the kinds of pictures that you like to, to make or how, you know, or, or technical preferences. I'm talking more about discovering what worked for you in terms of sort of a personal mm -hmm. practice. That's right. And you get to hone it and you get to refine it. So how, how did that 10 years of working on, on the Wild Horses of Cumberland, how did that help shape you and get you prepared to focus on the American West and the cowboy? If you ever travel to Cumberland Islands, the 
first thing that really just is overwhelming is the size of the beach. A big white sand beach. It's 17 miles long. It can, at low tide, uh, it's it's this massive white sand beach where and and there's nobody. It's just you and 17 miles of white sand beach. When the wind comes in, when there is a breeze or there is fog, uh, suddenly there was just what I loved is that it was so cleansing because there was so much white around me. There was the white sand and then very often there was this like, oh, very often um, fog, this mist coming through and layering, you know, it's sort of just sitting above the sand and then suddenly you're standing there and it just, and you see that very much in my photographs, you know, my Cumberland Island photographs, there is sort of just that very minimalistic style. Um, and that is something that to me, it felt so good. And I was part of probably, you know, building the style that I have, which is very minimal uh, and incorporates a lot of, um, you know, I, I shoot, I, my pictures are black and white. Um, but that was probably the beginning of, of starting sort of just moving into that style. And, and, you, you know, you stand there and you just want to capture what you see. Yes, it is a process and you don't get it right, right away. You, and that's why it took me so long. I just wanted to go back over and over again. And I wanted to capture really what I saw right there in front of me with my, with my lens and uh, my camera and my lens. Um, and, and so I'm self-taught. Uh, I may have taken a few classes at ICP, but that's really to me, um, practice and, and just sort of letting your eye and your mind just sort of help you create these, these beautiful photographs is sort of was, you know, the way that I was looking at it. And I was not looking at coming with, you know, a big backpack full of, you know, bodies and cameras and setting up tripods. And no, it was really, I had my, my camera, you know, around my neck and I was just walking around this island. And every time I saw something that felt very powerful and cleansing and felt good, inspirational and uh, almost spiritual you know that's when i took these pictures and very often there was a tremendous amount of either brightness sun fog um you know wind um but there were lots of those you know elements of white coming through yeah i love what you just said that it felt good because i think that for me is absolutely critical to anything that i want to photograph how do I feel in that moment? It's, it's, it has to be more than just, right. oh, it looks good. Because, yeah, anybody can take a picture of something that looks good. But to evoke a feeling in that photograph, it has to start with you as the photographer. You have to actually have felt it yourself in the moment and recognize that and use that in order to create the image. Otherwise, it's just going to be, you know, pretty and empty. Pretty and empty. Absolutely. That's well said. Um, and, and you want people, you know, and I have my books, you want people to open the box and you want them also, almost being 
feel like they're being pulled in that image. You yeah. want them to feel it, to to almost smell it and feel that mist coming towards them. Um, and that's really, um, you know, I, I really wanted to feel to to create a window through my work for to bring people into this world that I had discovered and this world that felt so good every time I put my feet on on that sand or walked you know across the marshes and stumble across these these wild horses that would be wondering you know what I would be <laughs> what I was doing there and and it becomes this this spiritual journey um and I tell you, a lot of these pictures that I took, and there's one specifically of these three little horses, I was just walking on the beach. And I was walking probably for a good two hours, and I was just going north, and I was... You start, you know, on that journey, and suddenly it's incredible what happens when you're surrounded by such beauty and nature. It's, it's so cleansing. But anyway, after probably about two hours I just felt a presence but I thought I'm on this big empty beach there is no one and and I kept on felt, feeling that presence and I finally I turned around and here were these three little horses it was fa <laughs> father a mom and the little kids and they were just standing right behind me and they had followed mm. me probably for quite a while and we just looked at each other, and I had a split of a second where I took that picture, and then they ran off. But those are the moments, like, to me, taking these photographs, you shouldn't be able to take them again. Uh, meaning, like, yeah. they have to be so unique. That, 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 to me, is what I love to do, is create these moments where I know that you can't, you know, take it ever again. And that's a great picture right there. And and so there was this culmination of these moments throughout the 10 years of these moments that you can't repeat. Um, and, and so um, that was my my first book. Well, you, you took a trip down to the West, had an opportunity to attend your, your first rodeo, which sort of piqued your interest in terms of exploring the, the life of the cowboy. But... As, as your images and the essays in the book indicate, they're very tight communities, whether they're in Montana, whether they're in Texas, whether in California or Florida. And gaining entry into those worlds is not an easy feat. No. So tell me about, about sort of finding your way into those worlds, because you, you just don't pop in and make, make photographs. You are with these people, no. you know, throughout their, their work and, and, you know, and personal time, getting up in the very early, early morning hours, uh, to go out into the ranches to, to follow them as they do their work. How did, how did you find your, your, your way into that world? As you say, it's, it's a very, very private world. And, and as an outsider, as a French woman, I just didn't know how I was possibly um, going to get an open door, an invitation to go and start this journey. And it was just amazing. I can speak for weeks about about this. Um, but when, so it all started actually on Cumberland Island. And so I was giving an artist talk and um, 
many people came from across the country. And this one woman came specifically from Dallas uh, with her friends. And, um, and, I, and she's actually the one who asked me, what is your next project? And sort of, I sort of touched on, you know, the idea of doing something about the cowboys. And so the next morning she gave me a piece of paper with a phone number and in the kitchen of the Carnegie family and uh, and I and she said you know call this person and um and and see what happens but this could lead to maybe a rancher who could help you and sure enough I did I did call this person and um it's this ultimately led me to the first rancher but that wasn't an easy task um you can call you can set a plan but you know and and they're incredibly kind people um, but it took a little while to, to get invited, um, you know, to, to this first ranch. And so what I decided to do in 2018, my kids were 11 and 12 at the time. Um, and I always like for them to get a little taste of what I do. So whenever they're off and on school break, uh, I usually try to bring them with me. Uh, for them to experience something new um, and interesting. And and so I took a one-way ticket to Dallas, um, rented a Tahoe, bought a cooler at Walmart, filled it up with water, and I had an itinerary of 7,000 miles with my kids. No iPads, no phones, no <laughs> screens. I wanted to see for them, you know, whatever we're going to do, I wanted for them to look, you know, I growing up in France, I remember we traveled, you know, by car to the south of France, and I remember falling asleep with my nose against the the window, just looking outside, you know, looking at trees, homes, whatever it was. But there were no iPads and there were no phones. You were just looking at nature or cities, whatever it was, or at other people's, you know, cars. Um, and so I wanted for them to experience that. So. And so we, we started this journey. I had mapped up, mapped up a, a few rodeos. Um, it was across five states, I believe. And, um, and I had called this one rancher and we had, uh, we had set up a time and a couple of days and he was actually in New Mexico during that time. So I had sort of just crafted my, my itinerary to go through New, New Mexico. We went to a rodeo in Taos, and we were in Durango, Colorado, and and so by the time we arrived there, um, you know, I called him up the night before, and I said, you know, I'm ready. Just you know, let me know where to come and what time. And he said, no, actually, it's not going to really work out. So maybe you can come. Um, to my ranch in Texas, you know, in, in a week or 10 days. So what do you do? There's, you know, nothing you can do. So you come up with another plan and you go somewhere else. And so we ended up going to a few other rodeos and um, we met actually another rancher. Um, I drove all the way south of Martha, Texas, and I met... Uh, someone who had helped me to connect with a sixth-generation rancher uh, south of Marfa. And so I arrived in, in Marfa with my kids, and I had scheduled a babysitter to spend the day with them because uh, they invited me to for breakfast. And uh, ranchers wake up very early, 
uh, and they start their day in the dark. And, and so I left the hotel about 3.30, uh, drove an hour south and arrived, you know, at this sort of cattle guard and, and drove in and, and it was pitch black and I had never been, you know, to a rancher. I had never, I had maybe seen, you know, cowboys at the rodeo back in 2004, but this was just some, something completely new to me. Uh, and it was exciting and it was at the same time frightening because I had no clue where I was going. I didn't know those people. And so I arrived and, um, and they, they greeted me and I went uh, into their kitchen and they had cooked breakfast and uh, we ate breakfast and I had a heavy French accent and I had their heavy Texas accent <laughs> and, you know, we were trying to figure out each other and anyway, it was very interesting and, and then, you know, they told me, well, now we're going to go and round up this, our cattle. We're going to go, this is about 40,000 acres, and we're going to go in all sorts of directions. And um, we may come through around here with, you know, from all the different corners. And uh, you have to figure it out. So here I'm standing in the middle of nowhere. I can literally just, just turn around and everything feels sort of like the same. I wouldn't know how to go back to my hotel. We had driven all the way on 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 their um, ranch, the, on on their property and pasture, and it was just it was gigantic. And um, and they said before they took off with their horses, they say, well, by the way, be careful because there are deadly snakes here. There are deadly. Everything is just you know, don't be bitten as you're walking. So you have a French woman from New York who's <laughs> you know used to work at Cartier, who's standing. Right there, and they were like, we'll be back in about three hours. And here you have that moment where you can say, I really am uncomfortable. I don't like this. I'm scared. Where are the snakes? Where are the tarantulas? Where are the spiders and scorpions? Or you can say, wow, this is like, let me just inhale this. Let me breathe this. Let me eat this up right there at the moment. And so those feelings that I had on Cumberland Island just sort of came right back. Now, it was not sand and marshes. It was just grass and little hills and this massive sky, massive sky. And so I um, stood there and I didn't know really quite what to do. And sure enough, after a while, you it's the skill is so big that you start just really listening. And it becomes very, very quiet <laughs> to be there on your own. And and suddenly you start hearing these cowboys in the far, far distance. And they're not 500 meters away from you. They're kilometers away, miles away from where you are. But yes, it all echoes. And they're in all different directions because they're all bringing together their cattle to this central point. And so that was the first, and I was not on horseback then. I was actually, um, you know, for liability, they didn't know who I was and it was not the right thing to do. So I was pretty much by foot and had a little ATV and I was just sort of just driving around. But there is no gravel road or paved road. You're just driving around on brush, on grass. And so that was my, and, and so sure enough, after three hours, you know, suddenly you start seeing, you know, these herds just coming together and it's just, 
it's like a painting, you know, and these yeah. cowboys. And it's a very calm process. It's nothing like what you read where these cowboys are, you know, galloping and the cows are just, you know, running. And it's like, whoa. no, it's a very peaceful process. No one is galloping. No one is running. Um, they don't want to stress out, you know, the animals. And so you slowly can see these, you know, herds coming over little hills and coming down. And so it was really neat to watch um, the whole process. And that was the, f the first one that I experienced. And and then a few days later, we're driving up to, to Texas. And that was that rancher. Um, that I was supposed to see New Mexico. And, and I thought we had been on the road for about three or four weeks at that time. And we had been eating only Tex-Mex for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Beans, rice, ground beef. I mean, I tell you, it was every single meal. <laughs> and so I remember sort of coming out from that world and we saw a grocery store. I think it was like an Alberson or Kroger. And we literally went there and we bought a baguette. It was as simple as just buying a baguette. <laughs> and it felt like, oh my gosh, this is the most delicious thing I've put in my mouth. Just a little simple thing like that. Um, and so I, I called up this rancher. And so he was again giving me a hard time. And I thought, man, like, I'm not really going to let him off the hook. You know, I, I told him, look, I'd love to meet you. Give me a chance. You know, I think... We'll have a great time. And and so after five days, his, his wife said, look, it doesn't look like she's going anywhere with her kids. I was staying nearby in a hotel. She's like, just give her a chance. So let her have, let's have her over. And so I had a babysitter for my kids in the hotel. And um, I was invited for breakfast and arrived in the dark again at 4.30 in the morning. And, um, and so they greeted me again. We had that heavy Texas accent, French accent, and we sit down at a table. And um, his mother, there are seven generations, and you had four generations at the table. And his mother um, had prepared eggs and sausage and all these delicious things. And, um, and it was quite, you know, no one was really talking at a table. It was uncomfortable and... We weren't quite sure um, how to behave around each other because I think that I was coming from such a different world and here I was sitting in an environment that was so different than I had ever, you know, that I was accustomed to and uh, was so different. Uh, but yet I loved it and I was so intrigued to learn more about these people. And so we went off to, we, we started a day and they also had to go and gather cattle and brand cattle and I do my work from a distance. I don't like to breathe in anyone's neck. And we went through the day and before I was ready to leave, he said, would, would you like to see my longhorns? You know, these are big, massive animals and they're sort of their price. They're a big price, um, you know, animals. And, and I said, I'd love to see your longhorns. And we get into his pickup truck and we drive off and we get to the Longhorns and suddenly there is this massive, I mean, when I say massive, it was one of the biggest storms I've ever seen. West Texas storm, hail, thunder, rain, winds, you name it. It's just, we couldn't move. And here we're stuck in a pickup truck 
and we can't see, you know, two feet ahead. And, and so what do you do when you get stuck? And you don't get stuck for five minutes. We actually got stuck for two hours. Well, you look at each other and you start talking. There's nothing else you can do. And I tell you, that was the moment where, you know, he looked in my eyes and he, you know, we started talking and, and we talked for two hours and then we realized, you know, how much we have in common. Yet we come from two very different, you know, places, backgrounds. We live different lives, but yet listening to other people, giving them a chance to listen and just sort of, you know, sharing, you know, your background and, and your life and, you know, about your family, your way of living, you know, regardless of which background you come from, you'll find something yeah. common. And that was just amazing. And I tell you, from that moment on right there, Thomas and I are like, we're such great friends. We, we text, we call each other like, it was at one moment where he thought, okay, like, this is great. You know, I think, I think I can trust this woman, you know, with her pictures and, and with her work. And sure enough, he is really the one who sort of opened the door to the whole world of the Cowboys, a, a big yeah. world. There, and there are many, many, many across America, but yet it's a very private world. Um, and so there came out the next piece of paper with a phone number that ultimately, you know, each rancher would introduce me to their friends that they had across the country. So it never, my work is not from, you know, I've never looked up on the internet ranches in Texas or Montana. All the work that I've done are about people who've opened up their doors um, and, and welcomed me into their homes, into their lives, and then introduced me to their friends across the United States. That is such a valuable insight to have, especially so early on in the project. And by that, I mean recognizing the similarities rather than the differences. I think, especially as a photographer, it's important to understand that when you're photographing people of, of another community, uh, of another culture, that you have to step away from the thing that makes them exotic to you. Because then you're just focusing on what the differences are. But That's if right. you can somehow discover what you have in common, that leads you to make images that I think are very universal that people, even though they may never be in that community, they can experience it through the photographs and connect to it as another human being. And I think that that's Absolutely. one of the, the beauties about, one of the things I like about your your work is that I, I see that. Yeah, there are a lot of images of people at, at the rodeos or out, you know, working the ranches, but there are also these more intimate photographs of these people just being with each other. Like the story that you share in terms of them having breakfast breakfast with each other. I mean, for me, there is nothing better than sitting down with people and having a meal with someone and getting Absolutely. to know them, especially if I'm traveling. I mean, those for me are like the best memories. I grew up with a kitchen table in France. Food was always so important. 
And and my my mother, who was born in the Second World War during German occupation in Amsterdam, you know, it was your survival was food, you know, and and we forget about that, and it's still survival for a lot of people around the world. Yeah. And so to be invited in these communities that my gosh, they're not wealthy people, and to be over and over again like they opening their door but it's just not a common just shoot our life no you're sharing meals with them you're sleeping in their homes whether it's a teepee or a trailer or a nicer ranch it's whatever and, and to go through that process that is where i think that that's to me has been one of the greatest parts of this whole journey and to get to know these people um and, and to create the photography and, and the artworks that I have, you know, that has been the biggest part to help me, you know, better understand them. As photographers, we are members of a small community. Though everybody takes pictures these days, we are part of a group for whom the art of making images is an important part of our lives. We know the time, money, and effort that's required to make images over a lifetime. This shared experience is why it's so important for us to support each other with more than just likes. When a photographer creates a book, it's an incredible commitment to their vision and passion and an affirmation to all of us of what's possible with a camera. It's why I believe in buying photo books to help support my fellow photographers. And I think that there is no easier way to do this than by becoming a member of the Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club helps photographers to get their published work to a worldwide audience that appreciates the work and the effort involved in making it all happen. With your membership, you receive a quality monograph each month. Each of these has been carefully curated and selected the books reflect a diversity of genres, photographers, and styles, all of which you will appreciate and enjoy. And if you don't like that month's release, you can choose an alternative book of equal value in their catalog. They offer free shipping to the US, Canada, and the UK. It's subsidized elsewhere. Sign up today and make sure to use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout to enjoy 10% off your first membership payment. Another great way to enjoy a regular dose of inspiration is a subscription to Frames Magazine, a publication dedicated to showcasing great photography. Published quarterly, the magazine is printed on high-quality paper and reminds me of the great photo magazines of the 60s and 70s that focused on promoting great photography and not just selling gear. Enjoy what they have to offer by subscribing today and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME to enjoy a 10% discount on your monthly and yearly subscription when you visit readframes.com forward slash join. And please remember that we are always in need of your financial support. Though the show is free, it takes a lot of time and effort to produce each episode, and your contributions help us to make it all happen. You can contribute $5, 10 $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame. Though we'd love you to be a longtime supporter, your commitment for just three to six months would be helpful. 
please consider doing it today. Thank you so much for your support. Because you're, you're so intimate in, in the lives of these people, how does that sort of shape or, or evolve the photography that you're making? Because you're, you're drawn to, to the community and to the scene for the reasons that you've indicated. But once you become immersed in it, it changes your perspective. And while you know the kinds of pictures that you can make, mm-hmm. how does it shape the pictures that you feel like you need to make as you get more acclimated to those people, their environment, their community? How, how, how does that evolve your, your, your practice as a photographer? I think my work has evolved with, you know, I, I sort of consider myself a little bit of a storyteller. And so, and, and I love that part. And, and especially when it comes to the American West um, and these cowboys across the United States, what I, I had so many misconceptions, number one, you know, starting this project. And, and all I knew was really what I had seen on TV, in magazines, you know, back in France or in New York, like most people around the world. But once you get invited into the homes of these real people and suddenly these doors open up and you travel around this whole culture across America, then you realize suddenly how big it is. And that is how my work has evolved in a certain way, is that I thought that there were just a few rodeos left in the United States. I thought that there were a few ranchers left. I thought that I was really just sort of confined to the west of the Mississippi, mostly Texas and maybe Wyoming, Montana. But I thought that there were maybe, you know, big, some a few big rodeos in Dallas, in Denver, in Houston. But then to realize as I was traveling out west that there are thousands of rodeos. And then there are just not only small town rodeos, but there are college rodeos, junior rodeos, senior rodeos, Native American rodeos. I mean, you can go, the list is endless. If you're traveling to the American West during the month of June or July or August, you will find hundreds of rodeos on a given weekend. That was the first surprise with the first book, West the American Cowboy, which is sort of a that, that first step, that window, and sh- for me to share with people, look at what I just found. I never expected this to happen, but here I found, you know, th- this, this culture, and it's, it sort of is different than what I initially thought it would be. And let me give you a little taste of that. Let me share a window into this culture. And it goes across, you know, six, seven states, But then, as I was out west, and I continued my work, and I realized how much bigger it was, then I continued my journey. And I ended up going to Florida and photographing Cracker Cowboys. And I was in California, and in Montana, in South Dakota. I mean, I went from coast to coast and border to border. I never thought that I would find cowboys in all those states. And I never had heard about college rodeo. We talk about soccer, we talk about lacrosse, we talk about all these other sports, 
I had never heard that there were colleges or universities out there that had a rodeo team, but yet there are, and there are many. And they compete the same way as soccer players do. They have their 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 own team and then they compete around, you know, regionally and then they have nationals and and that all that was a, very much of a surprise. So it was more the story that brought me to go back and photograph what I discovered. Um, and the deeper I went, I mean, the more I saw. And each corner, you know, each the turn of each corner, there was something else. And I'm not yet done. I mean, that's just to tell you the extent of, you know, how big it is. But we yet, we don't really know much about it. And so... What I discovered, um, you know, American Cowboys, which is the second book that I did, is a continuation of West, the American Cowboys, and it just goes across the country. Uh, and then it just also, it, I mean, there are just men and women from different backgrounds. Um, and that's something we always think about a cowboy, a man on horseback. There are many women who do exactly the same. And, and, you know, we sort of, cowboy is a gender neutral term, um, so, but many people call them cowgirls. But I tell you, they're, they're on horseback and they're doing the same thing as men do. Um, and, and so you get invited to families who have young kids who are raising their kids, either homeschooling or not. And... You spend time with them, you sleep in their homes, you share, you know, all meals, you go suddenly, I was on horseback. And it's just incredible, you know, just spending the time with these people. And I would be on the back of a pickup truck or riding along these kids. And there was no phone, there was no screen. And these kids, you know, could help out. And like at the age of seven, eight, they were already helping out. And everyone has a role on the ranch. They feel important. Yes, there is always danger, um, but they learn to avoid dangers from very early on. And they're given a responsibility. And I think it's just, you know, it was amazing to be able to have these two-hour conversations with these eight- or nine-year-old kids who would generally look at you in the eyes and carry on a conversation. And they were generally interested in what I was saying, and so was I with, you know, with them. But these were all, you know, things that where you experience all these moments. And then you get on a plane and you fly back and you arrive, you know, into JFK or LaGuardia and you look at old concrete, you know, and you're flying over concrete for 20 minutes as you're landing and you arrive and then it would always take me four or five days to sort of just um, get back to reality, you know, and, and yes, yeah, slip into a more comfortable life, yeah. a clean life where everything is on demand, where you can snap off a finger, you'll have an Uber there, you'll have prime Amazon on your doorsteps, and gosh, it's great. I don't mind it at all. But you live those two very extreme lives and you start reflecting on that. And and those moments, you know, when you come home and you think about all these experiences that you've had, and then you compare to your own life, you know, at home and your friends and the people around here. 
you suddenly, you know, realize how wrapped up we've become and, and it's we're increasingly living in the world of me. It's all about me. And when yeah. you go oh, out yeah. west, yeah. it's there is a sense of community um, that is incredible. You have to work with everyone out there. But yet you also have to be able to be alone. And sometimes when you are alone on a range and you are far removed from anything, you have to learn that things can turn for the worse. And I have been in that situation many times. And it's self-reliance. And it's, you know, in the, the biggest way. And, and we're losing touch of all that, I think. Uh, and so it was... It has, and it still is today, this, this incredible journey of living in these two different worlds, uh, because I still spend a lot of time out west. But I'll tell you one great story, is that I met uh, this, uh, this amazing, amazing person. His name is Derek Begay, and he's, he's a Navajo. Uh, he was born and raised on uh, the Navajo Reservation, and... Um, and we had met in Texas, and he had invited me to um, to his reservation in Arizona um, the following week. And so I traveled to Phoenix and got in a car and drove out, and it was sort of in the evening. And so the sun was setting, and uh, I arrived at his um, at his house, and he had prepared a trailer with two horses. And he said, we're, we're going to go off and, you know, we're going to go off. I'm going to show you some of um, this beautiful land. And, and so I was like, okay, great. Um, and so we get into his pickup truck. We drive off. And, um, and we're not really quite talking very much. And he, of course, knew that I would love to take pictures, but I had very low expectations. And so you never pull out a camera. I mean... One thing I'll tell you about shooting, you know, the American cowboy in, the, in this culture is, number one, patience. Patience. And, and in the world where everything is on demand and has to be done right away, you know, for the consumer, and has to be done for next day or next hour or next second, if you want to shoot the real American cowboy, you're not going to be able to do that quickly. You're going to be, have to learn to be patient and patient and patient. It's a privilege to be invited into people's homes. And then you have to work on their time schedule. And their time schedule is not really their time schedule. Their time and the, the way that they do their work is with Mother Nature and livestock and, and their herds. And, 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 and so... You can't plan anything. You can't have a schedule in advance. Everything is last minute. So that's a little, you know, side hook I wanted to make. But I get to, to this um, gentleman's place and we're driving off and, and we get, you know, on Indian Reservation and then we are driving out and it's like the desert and there are these 30-foot cigarros all over. And, I mean, it's like... It's incredible. And and he's drives off and he stops at the bank of this rather deep running big river. And we stop 
and we get out of his truck. He takes out his two horses and he said, well, and I had not taken one picture, you know, by then. He says, uh, I'd like you to help me to gather my cattle. And I looked at him and I thought, my gosh, does he realize that I'm a photographer and that I'm not really a cowboy? And I thought in myself, I thought, well, you're here, so you better have the greatest time. And I ride. I used to horsebike ride, and I thought, I've seen these cowboys gather their cattle, and I sort of understand the concept, so go for it. Try to do your best. But yet I'm here with my Fuji GFX 100, and, you know, all these rather expensive equipment, thinking, like, this is going to be interesting. So I'm looking at a river, and I'm certainly, you know, thinking in my head, like, I hope he's not expecting me to cross that river, because that's darn deep. And I don't know, if that horse makes a faux pas, we're just going straight, you know, down. And, and sure enough, he's like, well, it's actually not on this side. It's on the other side of the bank. And my cattle is wild. So just be careful. And um, he gave me a pair of shafts, because he said, just be careful with those cigarros, because it hurts. <laughs> And so we start, and I tell you, we cross this river, and it's, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what am I doing? And, you know, the horse is like chest deep in the water going across, and I'm like, have my camera sort of like raised up, thinking like, okay, we need to be careful here. And we get to the other side, and he takes off, and he's like, you should go there, and, you know, for an hour and a half we're gathering his cattle and we really don't talk much he has his dogs helping and and by the end we do it and he and and i help him and it all works out and this cattle is in this like little you know wooden handmade corral in the middle of the desert with these towering cigarros and the sun going down. I'm sweating. I have so many, like, cactus needles on my forearms that, by the way, I took out, like, for 10 days after then. And he looks at me, and he has the biggest smile. And that moment for him was a moment where we were like, okay, now Anouk knows what I do. Now I give her a taste of me. And, and, you know, what I do. And it was not about going there right away, taking pictures of him. He wanted us to do something together, to experience something together. And for him, yeah. for Derek, that was, he knew that I wrote. And he was probably one of the first ones who really put me to the test to say, like, you say you ride. You say you used to show jump and ride in France. Let's see if you really can ride. And, and I'm a really great writer. And so right there, we just worked together. And although I'm not a cowboy, that was probably one of the greatest learning experiences because from then on, you know, I could always help out as I was working. And, um, and that's a great story in itself that, you know, it was not about my work. It was about us having that one, you know, time together. 
Uh, and then from there on, I mean, I always joke when I'm around uh, in Arizona, I call him up or I text him, I'm like, do you need help with your cattle? And sure enough, every time he's like, absolutely, yes. Why don't you come over and let's do that? <laughs> so we've had a really cool stories and stories of, you know, sort of survival as well and getting tossed into rivers and sub-zero temperatures and, you know, looking at this this Native American being able to, and I tell you with nothing with rocks and sticks putting together a fire within I won't say minutes so you can take off your clothes and get warm if I would be alone I tell you I would freeze to death I think most people would freeze to death but yet this man you know this is the way he was raised and and you know these very sort of probably simple things that we used to learn are forgotten and and they hit you you know once you're out on a range with cowboys and you are um you know for example that situation when it's bitterly cold and you get tossed in the river it's you know 5 30 mm -hmm. in the morning and this man can put together a fire and that is what makes all the difference because the sun is not up and in a desert it's not going to get warm till about 12. Um, or, you know, at sub-zero temperatures, living in teepees, among you know, 9,000 feet on mountaintops and, and riding along canyons and, and fearing for your death because you're looking and you're thinking, there is no guardrail. I'm not wearing a riding helmet. I'm riding a, you know, a cowboy hat. And, and right here, my, my life depends on this horse. And if this horse makes one step, half a foot to the right, well, then I can tell you that rock is going to literally just crumble down and we're just both going to go down, you know, I don't know, hundreds of feet. And, and you sort of, it, it's, it's this incredible, you know, adventure that you're on where you're working with people, but also with your horse with the land, with the horses, and you're, you're with the dogs, and you're, you feel like a team working together. And, and that is something that is increasingly forgotten, you know, in the other world that I live in. There's a quote in the book that I'm going to paraphrase, because he, he uses more colorful language than I'll do here. But basically, he says, everybody wants to be a cowboy until they have to do the cowboy stuff. Yes. And, and <laughs> there's just so much truth to that because there is to that lifestyle and to that work is it's really a daily test of of who are you yes. what what are you not not just what are you capable of doing but what are you willing to do and that sort of I think that that sort of mindset is something that's lost in a culture that, mm -hmm. that prioritizes convenience and comfort. That's right. But for you as a, as a photographer, especially having, you know, worked for so long on this project, how have you found yourself testing your mettle in terms of what you thought you were capable of and then pushing yourself and discovering something more than you might have, might have anticipated about yourself? Well, um, I think that the way that I was, again, I, as I said before, you need to be patient. 
you need to be able to be on your own and you need to be able to figure out very quickly what to do when you're in deep trouble. And I can tell you I've learned that everywhere I've gone. And for me to still be standing here on my two feet and being alive is a miracle. But you learn survival. And that's probably one thing that I just, you know, didn't really quite think about it anymore, you know, living in a city. Um, and in, in, you know, for example, Cumberland Island, well, one of the great shots, you know, that I took, well, that was one step to hell because I ended up putting my foot in quicksand and I had taken the shots. And as I was taking the shot, I was, you know, I was, I made another step forward and that step forward literally was in quicksand and I just got sucked in and I was literally up to my upper thighs and I was just kept on going in and I remember just thinking like I'm dying that's it I'm gone and I but I had a very quick instant of just putting myself on the side because I thought all my equipment everything that I have is just going to make me sink faster and these are thoughts that you have you know that literally are just splits of seconds and, and and sure enough, I got out, but I tell you, I was black head to toe, and I still have nightmares of the about that moment. Um, but same thing with, you know, getting in horse wrecks, you know, out west, and just realizing that life is so fragile, you know, and it's no one's fault. It's just that you're going full speed, and you get your horse's foot gets stuck in a badger hole. And here you fly, and, you know, you break bones and you have concussions and you're standing you're sitting right there and the closest little hospital three hours away and so but yet every time I get back on you know and maybe I don't get back on right after you know being in a horse wreck but I think that I didn't realize you know from where I was coming having worked in you know, the luxury industry for publishing and, and Cartier and coming from such a different world that I was able to push myself so far. But I think that came that when you really love something you do and when you're really inspired by what you see and when you feel that your life has become so much richer, and I don't say that in a monetary sense, I say it's just richer, you're just you there's just no limit to how much you can do out there and the world is out there for you to make something out of it you know it's your choice you're the one who make the steps in life and you're the one who can choose what to do and and that's something that i sort of realized along the way and if i would have listened to others you know it, it you know i would have never been where I am today because I would have been discouraged because it is too hard to make a book because no publisher will take your work because this and that because it's just too hard and no one will listen and no one you know it's just too saturated I can't tell you how many times I've heard it's the impossible but yet, I think I'm a little bit you know being Dutch and German too I'm probably stubborn and I thought, no, you know, <laughs> why not? Why not? I love this so much. Why not? Let me give it a try. 
and and this may not be easy, but still I see something to me that is very inspirational and it has been so fulfilling and also as a mother just to bring that back and for my children to see. But that is probably something, you know, for any photographer, for anything you're doing in life is to not always listen to others, but to sort of just, you know, listen to yourself. Uh, and if there is something you really, really love to do and feels great, you know, give it a try uh, and don't stop. And that's really what I did. And I tell you, it's not easy. It's sometimes it's very lonely because you are on your own. And I, and, and I'm not with a crew. I don't have a lighting assistant. I don't, I have no one around me. No one is booking my tickets. There may be People may think that, but I still, to this day, I sure could. I sure I could have, you know, a team and a staff, people booking my tickets, telling me where to go and where to be. Um, but I don't because I love every little thing about it. And, and I tell you is that if I would have showed up at a ranch with a crew, they would have probably not open their doors because the part of the story is that they wanted just to spend time with me too. And, and, and so that has been, you know, probably, you know, the gra greatest revelation and, and sort of, you know, you have this idea of how you think things are going to work. And then it just becomes this completely different story. Um, yeah. And, and and so again, it's just you know when you love it, there is just no limit in how much you can do, uh, and that's something you learn along the way. My last question that I ask each guest is: I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So, who would that one photographer be, and why? I think that probably Dorothy Lang. Um, just because of her incredible work and, and storytelling, I think very important. Um, and, and that sort of, to me, became my approach over time when I discovered the American West and, and this culture and sort of realized that, you know, it's, it was something I wanted to share with the rest of the world. And that's what I mentioned earlier on, I look at my work also being more storytelling and, and really opening up a door and a window into the authentic, real raw lives of these people that very often, you know, doesn't get shared with the rest of the world. And, and to have the inspiration of others who've done that at the other times, you know, uh, in history is, is, you know, you think, well, this is very inspirational, and once you discover something that is new and you feel has not been shared yet, you know, you, it sort of has helped me craft my work and my storyline. Well, thank you for that, and thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you, and, and I really am honored uh, you invited me on your, on your show. Thanks to Anouk for joining us. Find out more about her and her work by visiting AnoukKrantz.com. 
If you're a fan of our work, you can write reviews on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on your social networks, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And remember to use the hashtag TheCandidFrame. You can also support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. We'll be relaunching our newsletter in the coming month. And if you want to receive updates on everything related to TCF, as well as book recommendations and announcements for special events and workshops from us and some of our guests, please sign up by visiting our website or click on the link in the show notes. And if you can't find every show episode on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candor Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.